uh, that when they come to Canada, as soon as they step off the plane, they get mauled. So three, two. Top the world headquarters of Southeastern Fly. This is the Southeastern Fly podcast. Thanks for joining us for this episode. Feel free to share it with your friends and fishing partners. Subscribe or follow so you'll be the first to know when an episode drops. If you find value in the podcast, drop by the Southeastern Fly store and explore the merch that fuels this podcast. So who are we? Who are our guests today on this Wisdom from the Guides episode? Our first guest, you've heard his voice on the podcast previously. He's been fly fishing for trout and steelhead for most of his life. He grew up around a fly shop and has been guiding for about as long as he could row a boat. He is the host of the popular Wet Fly Swing podcast. Please welcome back Dave Stewart. Dave, thanks for stopping by. Thanks thanks for having me again. This is going to be awesome. Yeah, we've been planning this one for a while. And we can't have a wisdom from the guides episode unless we bring in another person. Uh, and it's all—it's almost always, Dave. It's almost always three people, me and two others. And the two others are really there to keep me in line, that's for sure. But uh, our second guest was introduced to fishing in England, in England at age six. He has a love for steelwater fly fishing. It's taking all over, taking him all over British Columbia and Washington in pursuit of trout and char. His book, Fly Fishing Patterns for Stillwaters, is a bestseller. He wrote the Orvis Guide to Stillwater Trout Fishing. His entire family enjoys the outdoors and fly fishing in particular. Please welcome to the podcast, Phil Rowley. Thanks for having me. I'm looking forward to this. This is going to be fun. I appreciate y'all both uh, taking the time out. We've, we've, like I always do, we've previously spoken and kind of got into got into what the podcast is going to be about and how we're going to run it and all that. So we're we're ready to go here. What I'll start with here is how did this topic for this episode originate? And and Dave, it kind of started with with you and I when we agreed to do the the uh, smallmouth episode, mm-hmm. uh, and I released it back in December of twenty twenty one. Mm-hmm. Uh, and you had released it in in uh, in earlier twenty twenty one, and we kind of I piggyback off of what what you had done, and launched it on my my show. Mm-hmm. At that time, we had agreed that we would get back together and do another podcast, another episode between the two. We did we had no idea what we would do about it. If you remember, we were just yep. kind of rolling with, hey, we had an agreement, we're going to come back around, uh, and and do another podcast with both of us, and we were going to put it on my show. And then hopefully you'll put it on your show later down the road. But in late May, uh, I was traveling <laughs> and you were traveling at the same time. I was in Colorado. I can't remember where you were. Yeah, somewhere in Eastern Oregon, probably. And we got on the phone uh, as we were both driving and and we said, uh, you know, what do we want to do this podcast on? And we got off on a topic of, of Dave, you and Phil re- getting ready to go on a road trip. And during that call, we, we talked, we talked about a lot of different topics, trying to land on one. Mm-hmm. And after that length, lengthy list of topics, I was like, I want to circle back around to that trip. That sounds more interesting than anything we were, <laughs> that we were yeah. talking about. Uh, so you, you kind of fill me in and I said, you know, fill me in on what y'all were going to do, where you were going to go and that sort of thing. And you were going to still water fish. And we, we talked about uh, midges and we, we talked about all kinds of stuff that around that trip. And we said, well, let's just do one on that. And not only that, let's bring, let's bring Phil into the conversation since a, he's, he's knowledgeable on the topic 
and B, he was going to be there kind of working with you, I guess. Is that, is that, is that fair? Yeah. Well, I mean, we had a whole crew of people up there. Phil was kind of the lead um, teacher. So it was a, a full, a full, you know, from A to Z, Stillwater, you know, 101. Yep. It was, so it was, a, it was a full trip with a group of guys. And then boom, here we are. We're three, we're all three on this, this episode. And uh, we don't expect you to give away any, any of your best secrets, but by all means, give away your best kept secrets for us. Okay. Uh, <laughs> we're going to start with the trip and let's spend about five minutes each on the trip. Uh, and Dave, we're going to start with you. I think, where did you go? include the lodge and the town and all that. Mm -hmm. How long was it to get there? So what I want to do is I want to take our audience and put them in y'all's shoes and feel I'm going to come back around to you after, after Dave. Yeah, it was great. I mean, we had the conversation. I remember when you first were trying to figure out a topic and that trip was coming up and, you know, right away I thought, you know, I know a little bit about stillwater fishing, but I was like, you know, Phil knows a lot about stillwater fishing. So I thought having both of us on would be a great chance for your, everybody out there to really learn from, you know, one of the, the gurus, one of the stillwater gurus out there. So I'm kind of here more for like comic entertainment, but uh, I'll (laughs) fill you in on, I'll fill you in on the background. I mean, essentially I'm in Oregon, you know, so Kamloops BC was the destination. If you drive straight up uh, I-5 from where I'm in in Oregon in about nine hours, you're going to run right across into Kamloops. And it's one of those really amazing places. It's still water, lakes everywhere. It's beautiful country, uh, mountains, you know. So I pretty much took the took the day. Actually, I think I drove through the night, slept along the way, uh, you know, for a few hours, hopped up in the, early in the morning and drove my way out. And yeah, when I came through Kamloops, I was blown away because I hadn't been through there in a long time. And I just forgot how cool of an area it was. So Kamloops, then you drive out of Kamloops, you know, I think like 30 minutes, something like that. And you turn off on an old logging road and drive another like hour and you're in the middle of what feels like in the middle of nowhere. I mean, it, you could literally essentially be in the middle of anywhere, Alaska, Canada, because there's not much around you. So that's pretty much it. We were at a remote uh, lodge, beautiful lodge right in the middle of, um, you know, the provincial park just this uh, amazing place in Canada. So that's, that's the short story of how I got there. And Phil, how about you? Did you, uh, you probably live up there somewhere, right? No, actually, well, I used to live in British Columbia for 35 years. Um, when I emigrated from England, uh, moved there and when I was seven, 1969. So yeah, I'm old. Um, <laughs> 18 years ago, I moved to Alberta uh, to pursue an opportunity in the fly fishing industry and sort of been there ever since. So, um, you know, that move has not only taken me obviously out of BC, I still go back there a lot, have a lot of connections and, and uh, a strong bond there still. Um, but that move to Alberta is now, you know, I fish basically all of Western Canada, Eastern Canada, United States, Western North America, and even to Argentina now. So, but my drive, my trip to where we stayed at Skachin was very similar to Dave's in time. I'm about a nine hour drive from the Kamloops area. I'm in Alberta, the province immediately to the east. So I, I drive about four and a half hours west to the resort, to, to, the nas- to Jasper, which is a national park, and kind of scoot through the Rockies, through the Continental Divide, and then run down one of the valleys for another uh, five hours or so and get to Kamloops. And then you kind of double back up. Uh, as Dave said, a road uh, that runs uh, parallel to the North Thompson River until you hit a uh, logging road. 
which the name escapes me right now, but, but I'm sure it'll pop up about halfway through this episode. So if I blurt it out, I apologize. <laughs> um, and we, it was about a 36 kilometers. So I'm guessing 20, 25 miles uh, up a, you know, a decent logging road. I think it's still got some activity. So when you're on those roads, you're always coming around corners, you know, a little slow, stay very far right just in case because those if there's a logging truck coming they they come fast and they drive wide so so yeah you get up there and then we parked in an area there's a little uh, access gate you've got to go through and from there we what was it, about three and a half kilometer you know two mile or so yeah. atv ride into the lodge sitting right on the shores of dagger lake and the lodge is pretty spectacular after all that trip you're expecting to drive into a maybe a tent outpost tent camp or something. So to have a, a full service lodge with everything you could imagine from food and accommodation, it's pretty eye-opening if you haven't been there before. Just for the audience, I checked flights and, and I believe it was Vancouver. Is that right? Where someone would fly into? Yeah, that's probably the best bet because it's a, ma- it's a major international airport. So that's probably offers the best access. All the major carriers go there. Then you would simply rent a car uh, from the airport and it's about well it's about three hours two and a half hours three hours to Kamloops uh, of good four lane easy access I'm sure Dave could attest to that pretty scenic drive all the way up uh, and then you get to the town of Kamloops and you gotta then pay a little more attention to Google to get get through the through the town and not end up uh, somewhere you, you don't want to be and then uh, off you go and the lodge itself does a great job of providing guests with directions on how to get there both from the direction I came and from the direction Dave came well I checked flights from Charlotte Atlanta and Nashville because that's kind of the those are the the probably closest to our audience uh, as a general rule the majority of our audience comes from from the southeast United States and those flights go are anywhere from 500 to 800 dollars uh into vancouver then you have to rent a car like you were talking about but uh yeah so it's not terrible it's not a, it's not a terrible one and you got to remember that um that you have the the conversion ratio for the dollar and the uh for the canadian and the in the u.s dollars so well, yeah 500 u.s is probably about dollar 75 <laughs> It's not much. It's not much. I'm just kidding, everyone. So, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you also have the option, too. You could, if you didn't want to drive that distance, you could take a short regional flight uh-huh. up to the city of Kamloops, rent your car there. You know, you'd have, as Dave talked to you, about a half hour drive or an hour drive or so uh, into, into the resort itself. So um, just you're adding a connection and you may, depending on how those connections work, it could add some delay um, yeah. to it. But your flight to Vancouver, rent a car and go is your, your quickest, most direct way to do it if you were flying it. I think everybody's got a pretty good idea of where it is, what it takes to get there. It sounds like a long way off, but it doesn't feel like it's as far off as what it is when you first hear it. Uh, I did a little bit of research on Skatine Lodge. I don't know if I'll ever be able to say that correctly, and I apologize to them. But really looks like a nice nice place to stay. They've got nine lakes or something like that, a pretty good, pretty good amount of lakes. All of them have boats, uh, mm-hmm. and it's it's pretty private. I mean, they, they don't allow too many people in there at one time, do they? No, you, um, you know, basically once you're at the lodge, you're it, you are the people in that, uh, part of the country. It's, uh, up in, as Dave mentioned in a provincial park, uh, Bonaparte provincial park, I think it's called. Uh-huh. And, uh, yeah, you are, uh, pretty well all alone. You'll see some moose probably there are a few bears around, but they're just black bears. There's no risk of getting jumped. 
uh, or anything like that. I know some people are always <laughs> concerned uh, that when they come to Canada, as soon as they step off the plane, they get mauled. So that's not true. <laughs> and we don't live in igloos. Um, but <laughs> but uh, yeah, it's, you know, it's very scenic, uh, lots of wildlife to see. And those lakes, you, you, you've got a main lake right where the lodge sits. You have the opportunity to fish or you can, you know, you can walk directly from the lodge or take one of the lodge boats and, um, you know, drive down the lake and park it at a dock they've made and then get out and walk, you know, anywhere from 20 minutes to probably an, it depend, an hour, depends on what you want to do and, you know, how much you like hiking and stuff like that. But to some really good lakes within, what, 20, 30 minutes, Dave, was mm-hmm. all we really yeah. Walked, right? Yeah. So let's move on to the next question, guys. And I know somebody's wondering, you know, why does David have a podcast on here about the Southeast and we're talking about Canada? So what we're really talking about is is more still water fishing. And if, if you're still wondering why we're talking about fishing in lakes, uh, we're specifically probably fishing more, talking more about fishing trout in lakes than anything. Tennessee and North Carolina both have uh, several deep water lakes that, uh, that hold trout, and that includes Fontana, Chioa, Calderwood, Chilhowie, and Santilla Lakes. Those are all pretty much on the, on the uh, North Carolina-Tennessee border or very close. I've spent some time at a place called Calderwood Lake, and just for, for uh, Dave and Phil's information, all they did was they dammed up a creek or a river between two mountains. So it's very deep. Just to give you some context, there, is, there are roads under some of these lakes. There's also a railroad track and a tunnel under the lake. So that's how deep this is. It, they are super deep lakes. And I've been up there and I've fished. You know, I did what I knew to do at the time. I think after we talk about this, I'm going to have a little better, a few more arrows in my quiver, if you will. But we found the the shallowest parts of the lake and tried to fish that. And then we, like everyone would do, put on sinking lines and went around the outer edges of the lake as much as we could. It's a, it's a pretty long lake. I want to talk about gear. Try to keep in mind that these are very, for the most part, very deep lakes. That may be where we end up, but also keep in mind that there there's water in there for a pretty good ways that's maybe waist deep, maybe up to just over your head. So there's mm-hmm. probably about a, on, on Calderwood anyway, that's the one that I'm very familiar with, the upper part of it. It's, it's that, it's about a maybe quarter mile of not very deep water. And then it kind of drops off till it gets way down to the dam. So let's talk about gear. And what we want to do is we want to talk about rods, reels, and that sort of thing. And then I want to get deeper into terminal tackle, but I'm not ready to talk flies yet. Not quite yet. I want to kind of save that. Let's start with Phil. And then Dave, we'll come back around to you, but Phil, what are your suggestions? Give us, you know, just four or five good points of, of terminal tackle and, and, uh, and what rods and that sort of thing. Rods are going to match your, you know, it's obviously the fish you're chasing and the size of the flies you're throwing. My stillwater trout fishing rods in the five to seven weight range, I probably use sixes most often. You know, I've had some experience up in uh, Northern Canada, the Yukon, Northwest Territories, uh, northern Manitoba, northern Saskatchewan, Alberta, etc., fishing for lake trout. And they, okay. um, you know, member of the Char family, and they do like to hang out deep, you know, and I've successfully been able to prospect down 50, 60, 70 feet to get them. In those scenarios, probably I'm using, you know, in those I was, 
probably a little overdone using an eight weight um, because I was also there chasing other shallow water species like pike and stuff like that. So on a flying destination, luggage is always at a premium. For that scenario, for fishing deep, definitely had fast sinking lines in that seven inch per second range. Density compensated, so they're adjusted to sink tip first, get that nice straight connection between yourself and your fly. Um, I also had some clear intermediate lines. As you mentioned, not all the fish are, you know, way down into the depths. They are cruising the edges of drop-offs. You know, the when you look at trout lakes, uh, sorry, lakes in particular, never mind trout lakes, but, you know, the shallow areas of the lake, the shoal areas where the sunlight actually strikes the bottom, that stimulates uh, plant growth through photosynthesis, which provides habitat for various food items. The whole circle of life goes on there. That's your supermarket of the underwater world, regardless if it's a bass lake, a trout lake, any of those things. That's where a lot of those species are going to go feed or in their juvenile stages. That's where they're going to stay. And then when they get bigger and meaner, um, they can venture out into the into the rest, into the real, into the rest of their world and, and uh, you know, have a better chance of survival. Um, so you want to have lines to do that. And another line I'd never be without with uh, fly fishing any lake would be a floating line because it's such a versatile tool. I think most people think floating line and go, oh, dry flies, you know, fishing on top. You mentioned poppers, um, those kind of things. That's certainly an opportunity, but we also do a lot of uh, uh, indicator fishing and uh, long leader fishing at times where we're fishing uh, 15, 18, 20, 25 foot leaders sometimes. So that floating line combination gives me the versatility to basically work from the surface uh, all the way down to 20, even 25 feet sometimes, you know, with that really deep water, you are pushing the limits of that method. You, you're starting to get where sinking lines might be a better choice. So those three lines would be a good, and that's a good core selection of lines for any lake, a floater, a, um, uh, the clear intermediate that sinks at about two inches per second, and something that sinks in that five to seven range. And if you're talking those deep lakes, um, you're talking about, I'd be in that type seven, whereas some of the trout lakes we fish maybe only get 30 feet, 25 feet deep, then a type three or a five is probably enough. So there's a bit of local, you know, um, variance you can put on it. And that's, that's where I, I'd start. Um, you know, if you're going to be chucking bigger flies, anticipating windier conditions, those kind of things, you might stiffen up the rod a little bit from a six to a seven, or maybe even an eight week. Knowing your lake, your depth, that sort of thing is critical, isn't it? Yeah. Yeah. So you would get that underwater contour maps, bathymetric maps. You can get those, you know, online age, government agencies, those kind of things. And of course, electronics are always valuable to have too. So whenever possible, I always like to have a sounder um, with me uh, for just that reason. I think a lot of people call them fish finders, not that's one thing they do. They do a lot of other cool things too, you know, from marking GPS coordinates. Many brands of sounders now have actually the ability to build your own lake maps for you. They're mapping the bottom in conjunction with the, the depth recording of the sounder and the GPS and uh, the mapping software that's in it. And it builds your own private personal map because not every lake, uh, and particularly out West where Dave and I are, we see a lot of small lakes that just, you know, on the, world stage are not that important to map, but from a, an angling perspective, we're certainly interested in them. So there's some valuable tools there that you can take advantage of to help you know, because you really have to know for still water fishing, it's really important to know the depth, govern what fly line you're going to choose, how long you're going to let it sink, um, those kind of variables. So you can at least know you're in the park rather than just toss it over the side and hope for the best. I think that's what we did when we were first went to Calderwood was 
toss it over the side, hope for the best. We <laughs> caught a few fish. Yeah. Uh, and they were very nice fish too. Yeah. I was pleasantly surprised. But uh, that was kind of our that was our strategy the first time. We went back with a little more knowledge the second time. But I don't I don't know that we always chose the best approach. And definitely I don't know that we all had the right the best gear that we needed. Mm-hmm. So so Dave, what what what's your what's your take on this? And if you want to, you can even talk about what you took up there. So yeah, I mean, you know, ditto to to what Phil said. I mean, you know, I think I had a I actually had a four weight this trip just because I had this new rod that I was kind of using. So I was, I had yep, that with the, you know what I mean? <laughs> <laughs> so I had the new rod, which was great. You know, I had that. And then I had another, I think the other one was a, a five weight. And so I just had a four and a five weight and yeah, I mean, we, we didn't get any like super massive, you know, gigantic fish. So that was totally fine and not a problem. But as far as gear, I mean, yeah, I mean, I've always been, a, I love the intermediate line. That's always been one of my go-tos. And I think the thing I learned on this was like the, the, like Phil said, the floating line with an indicator. I mean, that's probably the biggest take home here is that I've, this is the first time I've used indicators huh. on a link setting. And it's just, it was super effective. I mean, that right away from day one, when we got out there, we were, we were doing that method after a little bit of research to find out where, what level the fish were at. Right. And then we were, then we were on them, you know, it was, it was kind of that quick. So, I mean, I learned a lot in the first hour we were on, on the lake. So, but it's pretty standard. I mean, again, I feel can speak a lot more to all the details and the gear and stuff like that, but it doesn't take much. I mean, it's really cool to think you can just go out there with a normal five foot, nine foot, five weight, right. in a dry line and just, and catch fish, right. Probably even without a boat in some lakes in the right condition. Yeah. Well, and Skitching was neat because, um, you know, they're, what they have up there is natural, you know, what we call natural recruitment where the fish there are naturally reproducing. So they are wild and energetic, you know, the lower elevation lakes that they stock, um, perhaps a little bit more productive, uh, depending on the lake and, you know, the type of species they put in there, they do, uh, tend to get a little larger, but then you're dealing with, you know, um, still a beautiful experience, but Skachin was quite remote. You were definitely, it was your lake for the day. Um, you know, Dave and I, the first lake we got to one morning, I'm kind of looking out there and rub my eyes a little bit and thought, man, those are big geese. And then we looked a little closer and it was two moose going across the lake swimming, <laughs> you know, so <laughs> yeah, you don't, cool. you, you're not going to see that on a more public, uh, easily accessible, like generally not. Yeah. Right. right. But, uh, yeah. So that, you know, that adds a, a little element, you know, we had eagles flying around all the time. There was always something to watch, which probably was a bit of a distraction because then in the case of indicator fishing, you weren't watching your indicators. And one of the things I firmly believe with trout and fish when you're using indicators is they have periscope vision. So they know the moment you take your eyes off that indicator, it's going under. And then you look back and it's gone and you don't react. You just kind of lean in and stare a little harder. And then all of a sudden, whoop, up it comes again. You're like, oh man, I looked away for two seconds. Right. It's gone. Right. Yeah. So you stare at it for another 30 minutes, something else distracts you, do it again, come back, it's gone. Yeah. <laughs> well, I tell yeah. you, I found a way to combat that. So that's, we're, we're always trying to outsmart fish. So I'll, when I want to look away, I'll turn my hat on sideways. Uh-huh. Oh, and oh I'll there look. you go. Oh, and they think you're looking at them. Yes. Tried that. See, yeah. you learn something new every Dang. day. I'm not there just another go. pretty face, you know. That's, <laughs> that's like the uh that's like the glasses behind the head for jaguars right when uh-huh. yeah and tigers exactly. in india yeah yeah, yeah, india, right. faces yep, on the back. yeah. yeah. exactly oh <laughs> uh, so so what's what's the one thing that you that you think probably someone would not think to take 
that they probably should have other than the indicator. And I think we did some indicator fishing on Calderwood uh, mm-hmm. when we were there, yeah. but we were also fishing that, that more shallow part, but, but what's the one thing that, and, and I'll start with, with Dave. I got one hot. I got one. Definitely. Again, another one that <laughs> I've got this, I've had these things in my box for years. I just haven't implemented them really on lakes ever, but a bug kit, you know, a little vial, uh, oh, and a, right pump, a throat pump. Right. Uh-huh. So, that was a big part because when we got that first fish that was, you know, big enough, Phil went down and pumped it out and popped out a bunch. We knew exactly what they were eating and what they, and what color they were. Right. And they were the, yeah. the chromie. They were, some of them were the chromies. So we knew like, okay, the size and you know what I mean? And that's what was I catching the fish on. Right. We were fishing a little, I was fishing kind of a flashy little coronamid and, uh, and it was because of that throat pump. So I think that's one great thing that you, everybody should have. You know, that is a, that is a critical tool because it's, you know, and we only use it for, you know, trout that are between, I'd say, 14 inches and, and, and 20 to 23. After a while, it gets so big and large, you can, I almost joke, you can just stick your head down like a lion tamer <laughs> and have a look because um, it, it's only got so much length. But it, it's such an, you know, especially, you know, Dave allude, allude to the coronamids or midges or buzzers, depending on where you are in the world. Um, they are such a key, they are the key food source out on Western still waters. And you'd be amazed that, you know, I fish some waters in Eastern Canada, United States, Eastern lakes, and they pop up on the menu there as well. People just don't, you know, maybe not in the numbers you see and some of the, you know, other lakes around the, uh, the continent, but man, that throw pump, especially with that, because with coronamids, they can change, you know, almost on the hour flip from a different color to a different size, and it allows you to stay in touch with them. So it tells you, obviously, as Dave mentioned, what they're feeding on, whether they're actively feeding, because the sample you'll take, you'll squirt them into the vial Dave mentioned, and they'll be wiggling around like mad. And if you leave them alone, they'll hatch and emerge. So I always joke in some of my seminars that through the careful use of a throat pump that I've probably saved millions of insects lives that have gone on for careers and, you know, and, and had families and stuff. Um, but, uh, <laughs> and uh but also it'll tell you when, when you understand the food sources and where they live um, and you get a sample, um, you can use them to predict where the fish are feeding. So if you get a sample that contains not only the pupil stage that Dave was talking to that are all inflated with the gas that helps provide, they get quite bright, that provides them buoyancy and helps both their ascent to the surface and transformation into the, the wing stage of their life, um, but also the larval stage, which we call bloodworm live near the bottom. So if you get like a sample like that, that's telling you the fish are right near the bottom and that's where you need to put your flies because where one is, the others aren't far away. So, um, you know, they kind of hang around in loose little groups. And once, as Dave mentioned, once we had the depth dialed in, it was almost a fish a cast. Let's walk through the stages of a, of a coronamid or a midge. Sure. Let's, let's walk through that because you, you, you had a couple of good little yeah. tips in there that, that roll off your tongue pretty easily. <laughs> yeah, I have a love for these things. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I can tell. Some may call it an addiction, but you know, I'm in therapy. I'm doing okay. <laughs> <laughs> so let's start at the start at the the beginning of their life, and then I want to talk about how they ascend to the to the surface, where they slow down, that sort of thing. All all that type of information. Let's 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 get on midges for just a minute, or, right. how, or ten. Want, how deep do you want to go? <laughs> They're a complete life cycle. So egg, larva, pupa, and adult. Let's start with the, the adult lays the eggs. Um, the adults look like mosquitoes, uh, but the females don't bite. They do not need uh, blood for their egg development. So, you know, you'll see huge swarms of them flying above uh, along the shoreline. 
the females fly into those swarms. Mating takes place. The males die soon after mating, kind of like a mayfly. Uh-huh. The females will wait until usually early morning or evening when the, you know, the light levels are low. The risk of getting picked off by birds is reduced. The water is calm. They're not going to get swamped. Um, they'll release their eggs either just by dipping the tip of their abdomen into the into the surface, or sometimes they'll kind of bend their abdomen like a finger and drag it across the surface to break the surface tension and then drop the eggs. The eggs are demersal, so they fall down through the water. A lot of times, depending on the species, they can hatch as they're descending, and then they hatch into the larval stage, which is commonly called uh, out west a bloodworm because many species have adapted. They live in oxygen-poor conditions. They feed on detritus decaying vegetation. There's probably, I think there's a few species that may be predaceous, but for the most part, they're, they just feed on the detritus, which is rotting plant matter, which whenever you have something decomposing, it generates heat and consumes oxygen. So they're living in that environment. So they have adapted uh, in their blood system, which unlike humans is separate from their breathing, right? So our, the way our, we take in air through our lungs, it's transferred to our bloodstream through the lungs and then dispersed around through our heart and everything. And then we exhale and all that stuff and recharge it. Aquatic insects are different. So um, they're totally separate, but they have adapted their blood system to accept a, uh, an, an, an oxygen ion. And because their blood, their uh, blood system is hemoglobin based, it turns them red, right? So they have this ability at times to be brilliant, red, maroon, scarlet, but sometimes they'll transition back to their normal colors, which could be an olive coloration. So from time to time, we see these kind of weird red and green banded ones, much like a candy cane or a barber pole. But for the most part, they're, they're red. Generally, the clearer the water, the more brilliant the red coloration in the, the deeper muddy bottom lakes, lots of suspended matter, algae, those kind of things. They tend to be uh, almost a, a maroon, claret, burgundy color, you know, a deep, rich red, uh, blood red, hence their name. Um, anyway, so they, depending on the species, and, you know, if you look at Western North America, there's over 2,500 species of Coronamids alone, and they're just by species, they outnumber all the other food sources in a lake combined, right? Much like midges on, um, you know, rivers and streams. They're just a hugely tough in their own way and very diverse and, and live in a wide variety of environments. Um, so that larva, you know, it can, depending on the species, um, we've got some species in the West. These larvae are an inch or just over an inch in length at maturity. They're massive. Wow. Um, we've okay. also got obviously the tiny little species as well. So there's always a range. So they, depending on the species, their life cycle in the larval stage could be months. It could be up to a year. They'll seal themselves off and they live in the tubes right on the mud water interface. There are some free living species that'll live amongst the weeds and they'll construct cocoons uh, amongst the vegetation. They'll transition like a caterpillar does in these cocoons and then they'll break free. And then they're in the pupil stage, which is arguably the most important stage. So this is the stage that basically ascends from the bottom of the lake where they transformed into this stage up to the surface. It's, it's not a, you know, as soon as they transform, they go. You know, I study these little guys in, uh, and gals in my own aquariums. And I had some pupa that were taking three and four days to finally ascend. So they'll once they transform and are just come out of the larval stage, they'll suspend just, you know, a foot to three feet above the bottom in these huge clouds all together. And I believe what's happening is there's a transition going on because basically the pupa 
if you can imagine, is like a bag with the adult inside. I think the actual entomological term is called a phyrate adult. So there's a chemical process going on that's actually a big word here called a polysis. But basically, the skin, the outer skin of the pupa is separating from the adult inside. Um, so when they transform, that adult can get out and doesn't get trapped. What happens is that creates space. And these insects have adapted to trap and gather gases beneath their pupil skin. And as Dave alluded to, that turns them, the closer and closer they get to emergence, both in development um, and as they ascend through the water, less pressure on them, they become shinier and shinier. They slowly writhe to start. And then as they get closer to emergence, they become more and more active and they wiggle more and more and more. And they eventually get up to the surface um, where a split forms along the back and the adult climbs out and away they go. So, but in this pupil stage, they're incredibly vulnerable. They're rich in calories. They are so easy for trout to eat. They just, the more bugs that get in the water, the more pupa, the narrower their feeding zone gets. So that's why a lot of the techniques we use are really focused on trying to get, figuring out where they are in the depth, in the water, and then staying there. So indicators are probably one of the best ways to do that um, because the distance between your, your uh, indicator and fly governs basically how far down. If you put your fly in the zone they're traveling through, you're going to get a lot of eats because they're going through there like Pac-Man, just munching away. And just, it's very efficient. They're, they're not a very, you know, on the, compared to a trout, they're a small food source, but there's so many of them. Um, they're not going to chase them all over the place like they would a minnow or a leech or something larger, but it's so easy. It's like you and I sitting on the couch with a, a bowl of peanuts or jelly beans. You just can't help, but you know, put them in your mouth because it's just so easy. Right. And as we can all attest, especially jelly beans, you can certainly add on the weight. So, yeah. So uh, they're a fascinating bug and, you know, for such a simple life cycle and simple looking, there are, you know, it's, it's a science out West with color variations and the patterns and, and things like that. And um, it's, it's just a, it's a pretty addictive Dave got to taste it a little bit. I couldn't wet his appetite yep. too much. I didn't want him to get all crazy on me on day one. <laughs> you know, turn into Gollum or something. And exactly. <laughs> Lord of the Coronavids chasing him around. <laughs> oh, yeah. So, Dave, what do you think the one thing or, or things were that you learned from about, about uh, Coronavids, midges, that sort of thing? You know, just, I mean, everything Phil just described there. I mean, it, it's like, I know a little bit of entomology and Rick Hayfley, who I know Phil knows really yeah. well is, is yeah. an entomologist that I learned from, uh, you know, a long time ago as well. And so I know a lot of the knowledge there, but I'm just like skimming the surface. So being out there and fishing the chronomid and watching it hatch, like Phil said on the surface and that whole thing is, is really cool. I mean, and that's probably the biggest thing is that level getting, yeah. finding out where they are, and then literally just setting your indicator so your fly is at seven feet or it's at eight feet and you know it's there. And if they're not hitting it, then adjusting it up or down to, yeah. to get to that level. And then, so that's the biggest thing I learned, like really systematically getting, you're not, you're not just casting and stripping your thing up through the zone. Like I'm going to yeah. maybe catch a fish down the bottom and maybe as I strip it up or something like oh. that, this is literally like we're at the level and we're going to stay there. And if we don't catch fish, then we'll just adjust maybe a foot or so depending. Yeah, it's, it's amazing when you, you know, you might be at a level where you're getting a fish every half hour and you make a change and it's, a, you know, people sometimes, oh, indicator fishing so boring. 
when it's going under every cast, it's anything no, but boring. It's not boring, uh, and right. it's pretty exciting because there's only one thing that's pulling it down, right? Yeah. So, and it's it's a very, you know, we'll probably it, talk about setup in a bit, but uh, yeah, that's it's what I was very tech. It's very technical. It's not just stick a a bobber on there and hope for the best. There's a real method to the madness. If you want to get serious about it and get good at it. And that bobber stuff, Phil, you guys have your little method was something I learned as well. I mean, they've got a little Phil's method of actually getting your bobber. So it, you could quickly adjust it, but then if you get a fish, it pops out. So mm-hmm. you're not dragging your bobber all over. So it's just, you'll talk about that. I'm sure, yeah. but that's another yeah, I want to know that. about that for sure. Yeah. A couple of questions to follow up on that. They were talking about, uh, and I, I will not get this right, but but they start securing gas, you said, yeah. from their outer shell. Yeah, just underneath their skin. And then they start to the top. Now, I have always gone on the theory that you'll see the fish fish's back, not a head come up and eat, but you'll see the fish's back eating midges mm-hmm. under the water. If they're eating the emergers at the surface, if because those pupa will come up uh-huh. and hang momentarily like a comma, and right. then they kind of elevate horizontal, then the split forms and out they come. So the trout can get tuned into one particular body posture, the comma, the laying flat, the kind of the adult is just crawled out with the shuck still trailing behind, right. uh, you know, similar to other insects, caddis, mayflies, yeah, those kind of things. Um, but the, you know, the majority of the, when they're on coronamids, um, we spend the majority of our time targeting one to three feet off the bottom, because that's where you've got, again, those clouds of pupa suspending. It's safe down there for the trout. You know, they're, you know, they can be six feet down, uh, 12 feet down, 14 feet down, 50, 60 feet down feeding on these things. And, um, you know, there's no predators down. There's no ospreys, loons, eagles, those kind of things. And it's very efficient. Like I said, they, once they find the level they want to feed at, all the food they need is right in front of them. All they basically have to do is turn their head slightly left or right and inhale. Um, it's like you and I driving through a swarm of bugs down the highway on a motorbike. We're going to eat them whether we want to or not. Right. <laughs> <laughs> so would you say, and let's, let's transition over to a river just for a second. Sure. Would you say that they would do the same thing in a river, a slow moving river, or I've seen them, I've yep. seen midges hatch on, 12,000 CFS in a particular yep. river that we, we fish. pretty durable insect. <laughs> yeah, they really are. Yeah, yeah. I, well, I fished the Missouri River in Montana, which yeah. is a big, slow-moving tailwater, and midges right. are, you know, and the same, I fished the green in uh, Utah. Yeah. Um, same thing, getting midges down near the bottom. They're always in the drift. They're always around. There's always, that's the other thing, too, whereas a lot of other insects can have these focused emergence periods, a couple of weeks or something like, basically in lakes, soon as that ice, if you, if the ice goes on, comes off, the shallows warm first, you'll get smaller, tiny mid-species, chronomid species hatching then. And then as the lake warms, the hatches just start sliding and going deeper and deeper and deeper and deeper. There are a few exceptions where we've got a lake in British Columbia I fish that is known for its deep water, like 40, 50 feet down in May, which is not typical. That's atypical because typically that deeper water hasn't had a chance to get any sort of influence from, from the sun. You know, you could argue probably after about 30 feet, it's not getting any influence, but anyway, there's enough, you know, enough things. It's generally things happen from shallow to deep as things warm, they're present all the time. So you can, in rivers, because you're dealing a lot of times, you know, I've been on the Missouri and the fish are midging, taking both the emerging pupa and the, you know, basically they're up on the surface in this feeding rhythm and anything that comes in that 
zone, whether it's an ascending pupa, uh, you know, a hanging pupa, a transitioning pupa, an adult, um, if they're not too focused yet, they'll eat anything that just gets in their zone, right? And go for it. So. Right. So, and I want to back up just a minute and talk about bloodworms. I don't want to go a long ways. And here's, here's the reason why, and shame on me. One of our Wisdom from the Guides episodes, I was talking to a couple of brothers out in, uh, they fish in Idaho and Wyoming, Jackson Hole, around Jackson Hole, I guess, and around Driggs and that sort that area. And they were talking about blood worms, and I cannot remember around here, and they're from, they're actually from Nashville, but I, could, I couldn't remember catching a fish around here on a blood worm. Yeah. Uh, and I've, I fish with people, you know, yeah. that fish these big, just like we're talking about, inch long blood worms and that sort of thing. Yeah, they often get mixed up with your your San Juan worms, which are um, a true aquatic worm. They're more related to leeches. These are, they're probably, we call them blood worms in the West in our lakes because of their coloration, but really they're midge larvae or coronamid larvae. They are the larval stage. The blood worm is the, the sort of common nickname that's been stuck with them, you know, because the majority of the species we run across, I run across, are that red coloration, but there are other colors. In rivers and streams, you will see the red ones. I've seen tan ones. I've seen green ones. Okay. And your midge species in rivers are generally a lot smaller than what you see in lakes. That's one of my boats for lakes. Our bugs are bigger. We don't do size 24s. <laughs> yeah, that brings it all together now. That's that's making more sense. So I haven't caught them on red but for the most part, but I have caught them on other colors. So I guess you could you can make a stretch for me to say that uh, that I have caught them. We just because our red is such a that, again that common coloration that's the common nickname they get given. And I've got a friend that fishes red all the time, does real well on it, but mm-hmm. I just I don't. I mean, I don't do very well on red at all. So could be a way I'm holding my mouth. Maybe I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> that's it. That's what. There's that's, a secret for everyone to tune in. It's all about mouth position. Absolutely. Yeah. <laughs> Exactly. That right there was something that, so the, all the, all that information that you, you just gave us to me, I think a person could listen to this and, and pick through it and not only help to adapt to a Calderwood and that sort of thing, because there are midges up there, but also use it in some of the rivers in the South that oh, yeah. midges yeah. Are, or you, use it where they fish midges, I guess. Is yeah. I think people sometimes think coronamids are a different insect than midges. Yeah. You know, in England, they call them buzzers because when those adults form those huge swarms, uh-huh. um, the, <laughs> there's such a volume of insects that if it's, you know, a calm day and there's no, you know, high, you know, background noise, uh, you can hear the whine of the wings together wow. and it's okay. it's almost deafening you know i uh, dave down your way on diamond lake one time mm. yeah. there was so many midges happening in the parking lot it looked like clouds literally cumulus clouds of these insects wow. swarming around a little breeze would come up and dissipate them a bit and as soon as the breeze stopped boom they're all back together the sky turns white and then i walk down to the shore and i'm standing at the at the launch area looking down and it, the lake was a little windy and it looked like, okay, it's, it's been windy for a few days. It's churning up mud along the shoreline because it was this three and a half foot band of what appeared to be mud. And I went down and had a closer look because the closer I got, the more mud like it did not look. So I, if that makes sense. And then yeah. um, I went down and put my hand in it and shook it and, sh- you know, kind of sifted it through my fingers. It was the shucks of the pupa. There were so many shucks that had come ashore. They were forming a band of about three and a half feet wide. And also there were shucks that had rolled up on the beach like driftwood 
you know, or seaweed wow. that you would see. Like there was just so many coming off. It was a little worrying, worrisome that when we went out on the lake, would they still eat a coronamid? Because, you know, I think every creature on the planet, you, as I said, the jelly bean analogy, you eat enough. You're like, I'm done. I do yeah. not want another. I'm going to be <laughs> sick if I eat another one. But they were quite playful that day and would eat coronamids. But the next day, they didn't want anything to do with them. We had to use something else. They were just like, I'm sure they were like, God, not another coronamid, please. I'll eat anything else. Just not a coronamid right now. <laughs> <laughs> It's like kids after Halloween, no more chocolate. Yeah, right. yeah. <laughs> I have been, uh, I'm not going to, everybody would know what river it is, but I'm not going to mention it. I don't want to want to send anybody down a wild goose chase, but I've been on one of our rivers here in, in Tennessee that it was foggy about probably two hours before dark and was floating down the river. And it's just a huge midge hatch happened. And there were so many midges on the water that you could look across the water and it was absolutely covered with them all the way across the river and pretty good sized river. And when you would dip your oar blade into the river to, to take a stroke, it would make a clear spot of midges in the water. So you could see the bottom. That's how many were there. It looked like it it's, almost looked like snow on the river. Yeah. It's wow. staggering when they're, you know, when it's one of those, years or one of those species it's just overwhelming how many there are it's it's yeah. just you know i can i've been in hatch situations in the west i remember sitting on a lake with my son my oldest he's 29 now but at the time he was about 10 years old we and this was pre-buff so we had to literally sit with our hands over our mouth like this and i remember we had a little snack mate cooler you know with our sandwiches and stuff in it and it you know blue sides white lid could not see it. There was so many adult wow. chronomids just packed on top of that thing. And it was just, you had to talk like this because you were going to eat. You know, I probably did eat half a dozen that night. <laughs> Frankly, I don't see what fish see in them. They kind of make gack and spit a little bit, but, uh, you know, they love them. So, yeah, staggering numbers. Oh, so, Dave, do you have them pretty thick around where you are or, or how is it? You know, I yeah I guess like Diamond Lake is is definitely in down Crane south Prairie, yeah yeah Crane Prairie East, yeah yeah we do those, yeah I guess They're I guess there. I haven't noticed it quite as much but just because I haven't been keyed in on it you know yeah. but yeah yeah you're too I know busy stepping there. and swinging exactly yeah <laughs> yeah I'm too busy focusing on other things that's, that's yeah. what it is. no and and they really you know there's different habits they're very diverse they can uh, adapt in a wide range of habitats but if you've got lakes with rich muddy bottoms they really like that stuff. That is wow. preferred habitat. And as, as Dave saw at Skitchin when we were mm -hmm. fishing one of the lakes there, pretty muddy bottoms, and, and that's going to be good, good coronamid habitat and good hatches as a result, and fat and happy fish. <laughs> Chased right. by fat and happy anglers, maybe. <laughs> <laughs> what about flies? Let's move on to flies and 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 uh, Dave, I want to start with you. What were your selections of flies? I guess if I was fishing with Phil, I'd just say, dude, just yep. tell me what I need. And then I'll, you know, yep. crack open another beer and right. make it happen. Well, you, you and a, you're my kind of, you're my kind of fishing buddy. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you bring beer, I'll bring flies. Exactly. Okay. <laughs> exactly. It, yeah. The, the selection for me, you know, and again, I was kind of living through Phil and, and Greg and some of the other guys there, but I mean, you know, like Greg's box and, you know, and Phil's were just 
you know, piles and piles of different <laughs> sizes of coronamids and right. And, but there are some other ones that, you know, we, I know we like the, we, the booby is always a fun one to talk about that style of fly. That's a totally different thing. Um, we used, I'm trying to think of the one we used that we did that one day. It was kind of like, it was almost like a dragonfly, I guess it was a type of a dragonfly pupa kind of not dragonfly, but that nip we were using. Oh, um, the gomphus. Yeah. Fun. Yeah. Gomphus. Yeah. yeah. The gomphus. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, that's a that's a common name for a Western pattern. It's uh, is spun and clipped deer hair, and it imitates the um, the spider-like um, bottom dwell, the sprawler species of mayfly, uh, dragonfly. Uh, yeah. Imitates the nymphal stage. So their dragonflies are a key stillwater food source because they have really prolonged nymphal cycles, three, four plus years. Wow. So they're like the stonefly, if you will of the Stillwater world and they get big they have a pro they're they're a food source trout see a lot throughout yeah. their their lives and of course it's a giant you know t-bone steak going through the water <laughs> it works it worked yeah. that one day we there was a hatch going along you know, kind of towards the sh- shore along this whole shore and we just went up at the top and pulled the anchor and just slowly drifted down yeah. and i was fishing and you know and and you know and then we switched and then the the other person you know i uh, Phil, your your friend there, um, uh, Kevin. Uh, they, Kevin, yeah. yeah, Kevin in the boat. He was rowing and he was getting me in, and I was getting fish. I mean, every time I made a good cast, it was fish on. Yeah. Oh, it, yeah. it was a lot of fun. And then the other five I would add to that. So I'd have the chronomid, the the gonfus, uh, the, uh, the uh, what what's the exact uh, name again for that, Phil? The the dragonfly name. Yeah. Yeah, it's a pattern called the gonfus. Um, yeah, the gonfus. Yeah, the gonfus. <laughs> so it was that, and then the other one was the uh, just your standard Adams parachute. Yeah, we did. I mean, well I had that. I had Adams. I put on, and I mean, literally, it got so eaten up. You know, the hackle got sprung, and it was just sticking straight up. And it was yeah. one of those days where it just it worked. Didn't really matter. Yeah, oh, as long goodness. as it floated and created a decent silhouette, they were on it. Yeah, because yeah. and that's one of the traits of those skitching fish because they're wild. They're more surface orientated. They just the way they have evolved. That uh, you know, they they will come up and eat a dry even when there's no appreciable hatch or anything going on. And I had in my boat that day, um, I was just up from Dave. I had, you know, a, a, a pretty good, you know, a seasoned angler and somebody that had just, that was his first time ever with a fly rod. And it was a great <laughs> teaching tool for him because he didn't have to make long casts. He could basically just pick the fly line up, drop it down, do a roll cast, drop the fly down, let it sit. Fish would roll nearby. I said, give it a twitch, even though, you know, technically mayflies don't twitch, yeah. but that's the fish just drew attention and within seconds, boom, he'd eat it and he's catching fish and he's having a blast. Uh-huh. Right. And now he's hooked for life on fly fishing. I hope so. How uh, fun yeah. is it? And I, I love yeah. this part where I guide new people and a lot of, a lot of guys are like, hey, I don't want a newbie. You know, I don't want to do, I don't want to have to teach somebody, but yeah. those first three or four or five fish, first fish to the fourth or fifth or sixth fish. Yeah. Well, that was just, for me. It's the best thing ever. Oh yeah. It was, you know, after, you know, fishing conventionally for, you know, basically through my, my youth with all that weight and all the stuff that goes with that stuff. And then to get your first fish on a fly rod, it's like, it's nothing. There's no, uh, no loss of sensation due to weight or the rest of the gear. It's, you feel like you just hooked onto a, a whale or something, yes. right? You, you yeah. get it in and it's like, wow, that's pretty small actually. But, uh, <laughs> uh, wow. That was fun. Let's do that again. And I, I think I get that, you know, I try to do that with my students from raising my two sons, right. Is, is if they're catching fish, they'll fish with you longer. Therefore dad gets to fish longer. Yeah. Um, you know, uh, in addition important. to all the junk food they get to eat, and, you know, <laughs> yeah. play with the dog, whatever it takes to keep them happy as long as you can. But if they're catching fish, 
um, you know, and it, it, the, you know, that seed's planted for life, even if, yeah. you know, like most of us at age 16, other influences came into our lives and yep, yep. form of cars and the fairer sex. And, yep, um, yep. <laughs> you know, then we come back to it later in life. Right. So, yeah. So what about, all right, I want to talk about a couple flies here. One, Phil, you, or, or Dave, you said Phil has a uh, special setup for indicator. And then I definitely want to talk about the booby fly because I've heard about it. <laughs> but that's it. I mean, that's as far as I got because I wasn't, I'm right. At the time I wasn't into fishing lakes at all. Yeah. Let's talk about that. Well, let's talk about, cause Dave mentioned that the indicator setup, and I yeah. think mm-hmm. and I touched on it earlier that sometimes people I'm familiar with it think, well, that's pretty simple. You just put the, the bobber. I always joke. What's the difference between a bobber and a strike indicator. It's about four ninety nine. So right. um, you know, fly fishing, we use the indicators, but exactly. it, you know, to me, the indicator is, is such, you know, and I learned to fish chronomids pre indicators, you know, on the fly fishing evolutionary presentation, ele- evolutionary scale. It's probably one of the newer methods, but it controls two of the things I see beginning stillwater fly fishers struggle with, and that's getting their fly to the right depth and keeping it there and then controlling the retrieve because and no disrespect to our river and stream brethren, particularly streamer fishermen, it's so much more dynamic. They're walking, they're waiting, they're casting, they're stripping it. And they're just, we're still water fishing is a lot of times, okay, we're going to cast it out. How long do I let it sink? Well, it's going to take 20, 30 seconds for all that to sink below the indicator. You got to wait that long. And then you got to just either, you know, as Dave saw, sometimes you just let the natural, uh, chop that the wind uh, creates just to fish your fly for you. And within a few seconds, that little fly underneath is because it's being influenced as the, as the indicator, you know, gets in that little, what we call the chronomid ripple, the chronomid chop uh, uh-huh. just dances nicely. That fly is just seductively wiggling and moving like the naturals, boom, indicators down. So the indicator is critical for that. But the most important part is the leader setup. Um, it's the most complex leader setup I use on lakes. Because the most critical thing with indicator fishing is you have to have level, same or similar diameter tippet material, leader material from the indicator to the fly. So when you set it for 10 feet between indicator and fly, it hangs straight down. A lot of times people will take your standard nine and a half and a 12 foot leader, which is in the trout range is primarily designed for fishing to rising fish on rivers and streams. Half of that leader is butt section to facilitate a gentle dissipation of casting energy. The fly lands delicately. You don't spook the fish. But when you have a leader, looks like a fly rod, thick at one end and skinny at the other, the thicker stuff sinks slower than the thin stuff. So I've had scenarios where I've had two anglers in the boat, one fishing a level setup, one fishing a tapered setup, both fishing the same fly the same way. The indicators are sitting, you know, straight downwind, three or four feet apart. So there's no magic fairy up there anointing who's the lucky <laughs> angler that day. And the difference is the leader setup because one was using a tapered leader and one was using a more level setup. And even though both set to 10 feet down, the one with the level setup is straight down to 10 feet. The one with the tapered leader, it's coming off the indicator and then sort of drooping off in a bit of an arc which is robbing that, that presentation of depth. And it could be, as I talked, it could be a six inch variance and that's all it is. And right. the fish just aren't, 
you know, they eat a lot of those things, but they're not going to chase one all over the lake to eat it. If it, it hangs in front of their nose, it can't help themselves, right? But they're not going to expend the energy. There's no, there's no reward for them to spend that energy to eat that small food source. So that leader's construction is, is crucial. So I use, you can buy, you know, I use the real indicator leaders, but other brands out there are nymphing leaders that you'll read on the package, it says tapered leader. So, you know, it's tapered, but not like your standard nine and a half, 12 footer, about three feet is butt section. And then the rest of it, the, the fine, they come in, the real ones come in 10 foot length. So the final seven feet is level leader. So the, oh. the butt section gives you, you know, you, you put your indicator. I like to position my indicator within about three or four feet of the fly line. You've got all your weight in one you know, concentrated in one area, when you start moving that indicator out to the extremities of the leader, it becomes unbalanced. It becomes difficult to cast. These level leaders are tangle prone, particularly if you're in an area where you can use multiple flies, you overpower your cast, all kinds of bad things happen, as we know. And uh, so you keep your indicator close. And so basically right where that that leader transitions into that level section, that's generally where I put the indicator. So between the indicator and the fly line, I have a bit of backbone to help turn this over um it's it the, the leader is nylon based so that is going to sit in the film or on the surface so when i react to a, um, a take i don't have to kind of pull the leader up through the water a little bit because it's sunk down under and also if you're using a loop-to-loop connection to your fly line the thicker diameter butt is not going to cut into that coating of the fly line there are some and you can certainly do it this way that use total level leaders. So they'll make a leader entirely out of 10 pound, eight pound all the way. And it certainly works, but there's always a risk you're going to cut in to that coating. Now, some add a little extension and then tie to, you know, make a little butt section of about a foot, put a loop in it. And it's just to me, another thing to go through the guides. Right. So this works very well, of course. So I mentioned, I've got seven feet of usable leader. Now, of course, you know, I, we indicator fish to 20, 22 feet. Sometimes that's sort of, I think my personal record, 22, 23 feet. So obviously I'm going to have to add some tippet. So the way this leader works just in summary, and I'll come back to the bits just so it'll, it kind of all make, it'll go full circle. It's kind of like a Quentin Tarantino movie. It's gonna, <laughs> it'll come together in the end. So you've got this uh, indicator leader. And then if I jump to the final tippet section, I always like it about two feet long of fluorocarbon. So I have two feet of that final tippet section. We have a small, we use a lot of small barrel swivels, size 12, 14, 16. They add weight, they rotate, they help reduce tangles. Um, the releasing indicators that we like to use in this method that Dave talked about earlier, you know, if you break a fish off, they will slide right off the leader. So that swivel acts as a stop. Um, there are times fish will eat the swivel and you'll get a pull down or you'll accidentally foul hook a fish on a stationary um, presentation, which you think is kind of weird. And what's happened, the fish has taken the swivel, you recognize a take, you set, you pull the fly up into them and you got them foul hooked. So we have that. We've got seven feet off the leader. I've got two feet of final tippet section. So in between that swivel and leader, I need to add leader to get me to the depth I want to get. So my rule is, let's say the depth I want to get is 15 feet. So seven plus two is nine. So if I take that nine, that's constant throughout and subtract it from my target depth, that tells me how much leader I got to add. So I need to add a midsection of six feet of equal or maybe one step down tippet, typically fluorocarbon. 
And I call that the adjustment zone. Um, that's my nickname for it because that's where I ebb and flow the overall leader. So if I hit 15 feet and I, I you know, have some success and then they slide out deeper for whatever reason, I'm going to have to add to that midsection. Conversely, Dave calls me over and says, Phil, I'm getting them eight feet down. I don't want to be fishing because I'm going to be fishing a 10 foot leader plus six feet plus two feet. That's 18 feet. I don't want to be fishing 18 feet when I only need 10 feet a liter to do it. So right. I can cut that midsection out. That's why I call it the adjustment zone. So that's the basic leader setup. Now we add the components. So we got the fly on one end. We've got the swivel I mentioned, um, always about two feet above the fly. It just, again, makes that cast more. It's like two droppers, right? right. Uh, and right. we we do use droppers um, on, you know, we're legal. Um, and you, I position those just above the swivel. Uh, on that adjustment zone is where I position them. I can come back to how I do that in a second. Then we put the quick release indicators on. Now these indicators um, have a black peg with a hole drilled through it. So you feed the leader through that hole. When you get the indicator to where you want to position it, you pull that peg out of the indicator, expose about two or three inches of the leader. And then when you push that back together, you kind of don't allow the leader to move in the hand you're holding the indicator with, and that will cause that leader to buckle and form a loop. So you want to you take that peg and pinch that loop against the inside hole of the indicator, about a five-eighths or so, quarter, three-quarters of an inch, and that loop holds the indicator in place. But as soon as that leader comes under tension, that loop will pop, that indicator slides free. So now you can fish... 15 feet down and not have the indicator all jammed up at the rod tip, wondering how you're going to land this fish. And as Dave alluded to between the indicator and the fly line, we slide on the first thing I put on that uh, indicator leader I talked about is a little rubberized bobber stop, the same bobber stops that conventional anglers use for slip bobbers. And we slide that onto the leader. Um, they come on a little plastic disc, with wires on them and there's a little loop you stick your about two inches a liter through that loop you slide the rubberized stop off the wire it's going to fold that leader over momentarily you keep pulling on it and pulling on it eventually the little tag end pops out and you transfer the rubberized bobber stop from the wire loop it was dispensed on up onto your leader moisten the leader so it doesn't build any friction slide it as far up the leader as you can and what that does is once we get set up and, you know, Dave and I are out in the boat together and I'm going to fish 12 feet down and he's going to fish 10 feet because we often experiment, you know, two people working on the same problem to find the right depth. I will, once the indicator is positioned, I will gently slide that bobber stop down to the rear, to the top of that indicator. Um, so um, if when that pops and releases, I release the fish, I want to get back in the game. I don't have to measure anymore. I just slide the indicator back up to the little Bobber stop, engaging, oh, okay. and we're fishing again, right? So it's a, I always call it a bit of a paranoid protector because yeah. if you catch a fish and you don't get one for about 10, 15 minutes, that little nagging voice in your head starts to wind you up. Yeah. And you're <laughs> yourself, right? So that's the basic setup. But the mo again, the most, the most critical thing is level leader from indicator to fly or flies. So when you set for a depth, you know, it's going to hang straight down. You use a standard nine, 12 foot tapered leader you're not going to get that, right? Yeah. And when they're, maybe if you're using bigger flies, like we fish balanced leeches and minnows and larger bugs, uh, fish, trout, bass, pike, whatever, will move further for that. But a little coronament, a little midge, although they're 
you know, rich in calories, they're not going to chase one all over the place. So you've got to get it in that zone and, and hang it there. And that's the, the best way. And that's the most complex leader I fish in still waters. So it's not just a jam, a, a bobber on a leader and hope for the best. I like to say, put it in their face, put the fly yeah. in their face and make them make a decision. Yeah. So that's, yeah, and, exactly. and that sounds like that gets them down there. So yeah, I'm, I'm going to stop us right there and sure. tell our listening audience that that was a ton of information packed in about five or six minutes. Go ahead and rewind it because I was following along and I, and, and Phil, do you have a website? I do. Uh, I have uh, right now it's called flycraftangling.com. Uh-huh. Um, it's soon going to be transitioned into philrolyflyfishing.com. Okay. But a lot of this is in my new book, the Orvis guide to Stillwater fly fishing. Okay. Okay. It's in the floating line chapter that that chapter covers both indicators and a technique that I first used to fish coronamids, which is fishing long leaders without indicators uh-huh. that we nicknamed the naked technique because it has nothing on the leader. And that's a, a technique where we're playing. It's a more finesse. It's more variables to adjust. But the one thing about learning that naked technique is it teaches you patience and touch patience yeah. to let the fly sink, move it slow enough and touch to recognize really, really subtle strikes. It's kind of the Euro nymphing of still waters. If I was to make that kind of comparison right. and um, once you get the hang of it, man, it, it'll improve your other, you'll be a much more attentive angler to the little details that often make all the difference uh, out there when you're fishing. So that chapter alone was 7,500 words and I've got oh, diagrams, okay. leader diagrams, all that stuff in there. That's probably okay. the best spot. Cause you can read it over and over and over again and, and then send me an email. <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> Dave, how, how hard did you find that set up to fish? Was it difficult to make? Did you, first of all, if I was with Phil, he'd be, yeah. he'd be, uh, making, making my leaders for me too. Yep. So <laughs> I'm, I'm working my way up to six beers now is really what yep. I'm doing, but yeah, Oh, uh, right. how hard did you, how, how hard did you feel that was to, to tie up? Cause it sounds super complicated. No, but I don't no, really pretty, think it is. No, it's pretty straightforward. I mean, it's just a couple of pieces and, you know, keeping it simple. the long section, you know, that's, and then the, the, the swivel is the other new thing for me, right. Putting a swivel, which is a great, great, another great tip that it's kind of yeah. like the, the tippet ring, the same thing where you just, just a little, just, it's an inline weight system, right? Yeah. And it's a weight yeah. and it adds a little bit of weight. So we were putting on a, a little, um, you know, a little split shot, uh, a little yeah, you had tungsten. Split shot on. Yeah. yeah, a little split. Ton- Dave, you know, couldn't Dave couldn't yep. wait. Dave right, no, couldn't <laughs> wait. Yeah, you know, but yeah, I guess you don't have to have that. I just, you know, tried to get yeah. down. But yeah, I mean, no, it was, it was pretty simple. It was pretty straightforward. I mean, it wasn't like you know, I've definitely fished other stuff more. I mean, I used to build my own steelhead leaders, right? And I'd uh-huh. be like, it's got to be this and this and all these yeah. steps. And really, it's not like that. It's fairly No, it's three pieces. It's a main yeah. leader, a midsection, and a final tippet section. It's yeah really not like any other leader. The only, the only drawback to it is basically because it's almost level its entire length. It's tangle prone. It really has no taper. Yeah, that's the thing that casts But in. the beauty of indicator fishing is you do not need, and you shouldn't make long casts. Right. So my general rule when I'm fishing indicators, the deeper I'm fishing below the indicator, the closer I cast. So yeah. I've been to this Crowley Lake in California that sort of reservoir down there has some outstanding coronamid fishing. We're routinely fishing 18, 19, 20 plus feet below an indicator. And, you know, you've got to be when, when a fish takes a, a coronamid under an indicator, it doesn't plow into it like, like a, you know, a bass would take in a frog or a pike eating another fish or, or the trout eating a leech or something. Right. Um, it's not an aggressive take. So sometimes they can take it so softly that that indicator doesn't pull under. It goes half down. It slides left. It slides right. 
And if you don't have that indicator close to you in those situations, you're going to miss those takes. Or even if you see them, you're not going to be able to react fast enough right. to get that because you because you've got basically leader goes out to indicator and then straight down. You don't have any direct connection. You're not you know ninety five percent of your strikes. You're not going to feel. There's always that one fish mm-hmm. that just pile drives the fly for whatever yeah. reason. Yeah. Um, but you've got to keep it close. So most fly lines like fly line choice is important with this too because you can fish with any floating line. But when you buy a floating line for lakes you're going to want to buy a line that's specifically designed with long leaders and indicators in mind. Like I helped Rio develop the Stillwater floater because we needed a line to help. We need mass to turn that over. So it's got a short, aggressive front taper, a large oversized head, a good back taper for roll casting. Cause I'd argue the best cast for indicator fishing is a roll cast because flies only come out of the water on that final push and roll over and flop it out there. And, and let it work. And um, so you're not going to be making, this is not a double haul. This is not nine false casts um, because you're <laughs> going to be consuming tippet and flies and, and sending me hate mail because. Yes. <laughs> yeah. So ha- as Dave can attest, half the time you'd pick it up. If you want to overhead cast, pick it up and lay it down. That's it. Yep. Just get yep. it out and make sure indicator lands and you have yeah. all these, his split shot would land and swivel and then his fly. Make sure you see that separation. You yep. know, you're good. Yeah. yeah. Well, Dave, let's back up and Dave and talk about this booby fly just a minute. Uh, cause you mentioned it. So let's well, start off. I, with I you. mentioned it, but it was more, more of a joke for uh, Phil. It was more of a key to him because I asked it to Brian Chan, another guy that everybody yeah. should check out, you know, very knowledgeable, had him on the podcast as well on, on our show. And I asked him that same question. I said, tell me about the booby fly. And he, we kind of laughed because, but I think Phil should actually, if we're going to talk the booby fly, I think Phil should actually do, do it justice and explain what it's about. Okay. Yeah, it's, it's another one. We have some desperate names in Stillwater Fishing. The booby was a fly originated, I believe, by Gordon Fraser in England. And it's leech-like in appearance. It's usually got a long, uh, you know, a, a marabou tail that can be short or long, uh, a body on it, and then a distinct set of round foam eyeballs, like a foam dumbbell. Right. And what this fly does is it's not a fly necessary. Like a lot, there are flies we fish we fly fish in general, but particularly in lakes, we, I, I call them attractors. I break my flies into three categories, suggestive flies that are kind of that woolly bugger style. They could be one of 12 different things. They just look buggy and good to eat. You have your imitative flies that are designed to tackle a specific scenario. Coronamids, what we've been talking about is a classic example. They want, you know, a size 12 olive with a red butt and a silver wire and a white bead and this and that. They, that's what they want. You got to get, that's what your fly has to look like. And then there are those situations where the trout don't, aren't necessarily feeding. So we got to trigger a, what a bass fisherman would often call a reaction bite. We've got to get them to eat something even when, so we're appealing to their aggressive predatory nature, their curiosity, their territoriality. We're getting them to you know, basically attack this thing for one of those reasons. So the booby is typically tied in bright fluorescent colors. It shakes when, and you drag it down with a fast sinking line because of that buoyant flies. You got to get them oh. down. Now we do. I have fish boobies on the surface as a waking fly, not only for trout, but for smallmouth. Cause oh. it's just, you know, it's creating a wake and they'll come up and have a look. And it'll also one thing about these attractor flies, when you use them in a team of flies, they will attract fish in to that team and they may not eat that 
you know, the attractor, but they'll turn down or turn up the leader yeah. and see, oh, look at that nice looking natural hair's ear or that natural looking nymph and eat that. Um, but that's what the boobies primarily used for is we fish them aggressively. So fast sinking lines, cast them out, let them sink four to six inch aggressive strip pause retrieves to get that fly to move. You know, as you strip it, it goes down. As you pause, it flutters up. As you strip it as well, the eyes cause it to wobble. And it's just, it drives fish crazy at times when they're on them. And the takes are usually very solid, right? So this is a technique when we've tried that suggestive flies, nothing's worked. We've gone the imitative route. That's not worked. I want to catch a fish. Let's try and, and attract one in. And, and it's part of a whole family of flies that fall into that attractor category. Now we have uh, a fly called the blob, which is just, and all these flies, the common material in many of them is a chenille like material called fritz that comes out of England. And it's got lots of different, there's standard fritz, jelly fritz, daphnia fritz, slush jelly. That's kind of, it seems like every week there's a new fritz and they're always better than the last one and the other ones are pretty good so these are fluorescent they're translucent um you know they they just you know we use the blobs as well to imitate zooplankton when they get on them in the uh early summer and late fall um so we fish a blob is just basically a um the body of a booby with no foam and can have a tail on it there's a lot of personality tires put in we've got a version a cross between a blob and a booby called a fab. And this fly <laughs> came about because in England, where these flies are so popular, the boobies in some fisheries were getting banned because they were so effective and people weren't using other methods. This is why I understand it. So they kind of, you know, let's go back and fish the way fly fishing was sort of intended to be um, fished. Um, so co competitive fishing is pretty popular over there. So an intrepid Scottish team said, well, if you can't fish flies with foam in the front, because that's, I believe, how the regulation was worded, what if we put it in the rear? And I was like, well, we never thought of that one, so I guess it's okay. Um, <laughs> and so what they would do is they take the foam, you know, the round foam cord that we shape these eyes out of, tie it in like a tail, and then split it so it's like a V opens up. It gives more buoyancy. And that fly, when you strip it, moves horizontally. When you pause it, the back end kicks up. Oh, so, yeah. So yeah, the yeah. fab it's called stands for a foam arsed blob. And what, <laughs> and what these competitors also did at the end of the day, because they've had a good day, they got to run the gauntlet at the launch. What were you using? Let me see your fly, blah, blah, blah. They would actually, at the end of the day, pinch that foam tail out. People think they were using a blob, which has a totally different uh, uh -huh. look and action. To, well, not totally different, but a different, it doesn't have that foam tail. Right. And then of course, the mop tail has made it to still water fishing too. So if you take a, a bead headed or a, a, a blob and, and stick a uh, mop tail out the back, it becomes what the English call a watsit because the mop tails look like a watsit uh, corn, corn chip or crisp as they call it, right? <laughs> that little mop finger looks like that. And now we've got, I started using more frequently a, a pattern called the apps worm, which looks like a plate of spaghetti or a spider going through the water tied in these gaudy colors. It's got, you know, a, basically a, a, a fluorescent thread body, olive, amber, red, orange, uh, and two stretch floss, span flex, super floss, sexy floss, all those um, types of materials. Two feet, two coming out about an inch and a half long out the front, two coming out the back an inch and a half, two out the sides an inch and a half, two out the other sides at the midsection. This thing looks like a little spider. 
And yet when you strip it, those legs are just going like mad and, and man, they work. I had a, a friend of mine over in Wales said, Reese, you got to try this fill over there. And I was skeptical looking at that thing about, you know, the size of a, a cookie in diameter. <laughs> I'm going to throw that in the lake and strip it around. But they love, you know, a ton, all these flies have their time and their place. And when it's yeah. on, it's as Dave can attest with the booby. It's a lot of fun, right? Cause they plow them. Again, yeah. another ton of information right there. All in just just packed into just a few minutes. And again, oh. all in the book. <laughs> all in the book. Okay. Yeah. The operators are standing by. Yeah. yeah. I should be mentioning. <laughs> I should be mentioning this is all in the book. Yeah. Yeah. I really should. And I apologize for not That's mentioning okay. that more. <laughs> no, no. Uh, you and I'll put I'll put a link out there yeah. uh to to some of this stuff. Definitely the book and, and Dave, definitely to your your podcast and your episodes and stuff. I guess our one last question, and we ask this of every guest, all our guests ask it from, from, I guess we've been doing this for definitely since the first of this year, but uh, what's the one question that we didn't ask that you believe would help our audience become a more productive stillwater angler? Dave, let's start with you. Yeah. Yeah. I got a, a pretty good, maybe it's a simple one, but I think it's a good one. If you, if you haven't done this before, which I never really did that much is the, um, the anchoring right? Double anchor. I mean, some people like for yeah. me, I'm a river guy. It's like you got an anchor in the back of the boat, but in Stillwater, <laughs> having the two anchors and Phil again could probably talk more about this, but it just gets you. So you're not swaying around and you can, you know, two people can fish. And so yeah. that was something that was, you know, I mean, if, if people haven't heard of that, that was definitely a big one, but I mean, we touched on, you know, a little bit of everything. There's all sorts of tips and tricks we didn't touch on, you know, that we, you know, maybe even didn't touch on on the podcast we had previously with Phil, yeah, but uh, a lot of things, and yeah, again, it's probably in the book. And if it's not, then uh, you know we'll, we'll do another podcast with it. I think I think we're going to get Phil on again some, somewhere down yeah. the line. That's a, well, that's, that's a good key. idea. The, the anchoring, particularly with this chronomid technique, you need to have total control of your casting platform so you can focus on the presentation. Because depending on the method you use, the takes can be subtle. So that double anchoring when we're anchored in the wind in a single boat. We put the heaviest anchor at the bow, put the bow into the wind, nice narrow profile. We use the bow at the stern to stop the sway. Yeah. Dave and I were fishing together in a boat. So we both want to fish out of the side. So we're not in fist fights five minutes in because we're right. beating each other to death with swivels and bead heads. <laughs> um, so we would put in that scenario, I put the lighter anchor on the bow because it's lighter up there, draws less water, put that one down first and then let the wind or use oars or an electric or whatever you want to do to swing that boat perpendicular. So the wind is hitting you square in the back and then you drop that stern anchor. Now you can both fish out the sides kind of, I've got, if I'm in the stern, I've got from noon to, you know, nine o'clock to the stern and Dave gets noon to three o'clock unless Dave misses a fish. Then I get to cast in. Absolutely. Yes. Yeah, that's all yeah, fair. Yeah. You missed him. You had him. I and, wanna... and, part, and part of that question, and part <laughs> of that question too, is like, you thinking out again, like getting to the spot. That's probably a big question. You know, you get to the lake, where do you, you got this big flat lake, where do you go fish? Right. That would yeah. be, that's always a good question to be like, okay, and are all lakes the same? Could you just kind of, and what do you do? Right. Uh, you know, that's always a question for me and probably lots of people. Yeah. Got to answer that. Well, we um, be observant is the first thing, you know, the day we went over, one of the things we look for moving fish and in short order, we rode away from the launch. We saw a couple of fish moving along the shore. We call it the two fish rule. You see one fish move. Okay. Two fish move there's something there and, and right. they're usually an indication if there's because fish like to pod up in little loose gangs and associations. <laughs> and uh, 
Um, where there's two, there's probably more. They're active, and at least A, you know there's fish there, you feel confident, and B, um, you know, they're, they're active, they'll probably take the fly, and that was the case. But a lot of times we're, you know, I break it into three things, comfort, protection, and food, just like a river angler does. Yeah. So comfort's all about water temperature. Uh, looking for the right temperature. So in still water trout fishing, you know, every species is different, but I like to find that 50 to 65 degree range. That's a good range where trout are functioning, their metabolism, they're eating, they're digesting. And, and to me, that's very important. If a trout can't function properly, it's not going to eat. The analogy I use a lot in my seminars is if Dave, if I ran the Boston Marathon and didn't die of a heart attack in the first five feet um, and I actually made it and Dave comes up, congratulations, Phil, you made it. Here's a cheeseburger. You want it? I'll be like, yeah, not now. Thanks. <laughs> I'm trying to get my, you know, get my heart rate back to normal, get my metabolism back. And then I'll think about feeding. So those are the comfort factors. Weeds are important in there too, because weeds give off through photosynthesis, give off oxygen springs inflow streams, those kind of things. So a thermometer is key for that. Then the protection factors are the things that give the trout the sense of confidence, comfort to feed. So that's adjacency to deep water. We talked early on, you've got your local lakes where they've got the, the edges. So they'll come out onto the shoals, do some feeding, anything spooks them, they're off into the deep water into the safety of that. Points of land, drop-offs, weed beds again, because weed beds mask their presence, they can swim through them, over them. They basically almost disappear on them. The water surface has an impact. If it's rippled, it's going to diffuse and break up light. If you think like a riffle on a stream, same kind of logic. You can usually sneak up pretty close on a trout in a riffle um, without spooking it. Light as well, trout. Um, they will come in and feed in the shallows on bright, sunny days, but they're just a little bit more wary. They're a little bit more in tune with what's going on, a little harder to get. That doesn't mean you can't get them. And then the third thing is food go to where the food is. And that's that shallow shoal area. So in stillwater trout fishing in particular, we like that water that's 20 feet deep or less because that's typically on most lakes on average, the extent of sunlight penetration, 20 feet deep or less. The clearer the lake, yes, more sunlight penetration. That's going to stimulate the weed growth that creates the habitat where the food lives, right? And that's where trout go to shop. It's like, I don't know, I want to take Dave somewhere and kidnap him or something. I know Dave's got to eat. Dave's got to go to the grocery store sooner or later. I'm just going to sit in the parking lot and wait for him. That sounds a little weird, but <laughs> yeah. hopefully your viewers don't think, holy crap, what's still up yeah, there? He spends a lot of time in the snow. Um, but it's just a, you know another one of my colorful little metaphors just to illustrate a point. <laughs> yeah, so comfort, protection, and food, and then use your eyes and ears to kind of pull all of that in and, and, and figure out what to do. And those are important because every time you go out on the water, you know, whether it's the ocean, a lake, a river, a pond, whatever, you're learning every day and you, you just want to keep that information and patterns start to emerge. You start to see commonalities because, you know, I get the good fortune to travel around North America and even down into South America and Argentina and, and fish are fish. Thankfully, they don't know borders or taxes or politics or any of that stuff. They just <laughs> eat, swim and eat and maybe get to make little fish some days. You know, they all have similar behaviors. So, you know, in the summer months, when it gets too warm for me on trout lakes, I go chase walleye on the fly yeah. uh, using exactly the same tactics, exactly the same gear. You know, strike indicators are slip bobbers. Um, casting and retrieving streamers is fishing crankbaits and spinner rigs. Um, you know, similarities. Um, vertical jigging is the same as fishing a fast sinking line vertically and suspending a fly just above the bottom. Allows me to fish into deep water. That's that bare essentials. That's that dangling technique I mentioned. So, you know, I I target 
pike, bass, walleye, trout, all the same basic way. There's a little quirks they have, but you'll find is an awful lot of commonalities that, you know, techniques can be easily adapted to other species. So it's, even though I know we've been focused on trout tonight, hopefully some of your listeners go, wow, I can use that technique. You know, I've got friends back East and Eastern Canada that hang uh, bait fish patterns under indicators and absolutely slaughter smallmouth with them say this yeah. is the greatest method ever right and it's <laughs> it's so deadly right it's slip bobbering it's it, you know it works equally well for for you just got to change the fly from a coronamid to you know a leech or a minnow or you know something that a you know a, a, a bass or a, a walleye would be more interested in yeah I, I i say if you you know if, if there's a place on your river that you are pretty good at fishing you go to another river and there's something very similar to that. Do what you normally do. And you'll do quite well. And you'll catch some fish that way. Definitely. So definitely the same, the same thing here. Well, y'all, are y'all ready to close this thing out? No, let's go on for another four. <laughs> okay. <laughs> sure. I guess the one thing that I learned uh, tonight was uh, that, that uh, I guess if, if I had to go back and answer the question, what was one question that we didn't ask? Uh, that would help our listeners. And, and I, the one thing that I think that I would say is buy Phil beer and let him do all the work. Sure. That's I like doing it. That's the way I guide and do the schools. People ask me, how can you just sit in the boat all day and let two other people fish? Cause I, yeah. get, I get a big thrill out of seeing them be successful and fall in love with this great sport. Right. Yeah. Um, that's not going to say some days I really want to, you know, when, when I know there's fish to be caught and, you know, maybe they're just, still not haven't developed to the point, you know, right. there's a little bit of energy in there that would like just to, you know, but eventually we work through it and, and they get to catch fish. Dave was an easy student. He let me fish. I think he actually brought yeah. some beer too. Oh yeah. He was my boat buddy for the week. As soon as, uh, well, what are the boat partners? I'll go with Dave again. Yeah. <laughs> yeah we had a good time. We had yeah. a good time for sure. That was a good trip. Yeah. Well, let's go ahead and close this thing out guys. If you find value in the podcast, share this episode with your friends and fishing partners, drop by the Southeastern fly store and explore the merch that pays for the Southeastern fly podcast. So who were our guests today on the, this Wisdom from the Guides episode? First guest, guest you've heard his voice uh, on this pod, podcast previously. He's been, on, he's been fly fishing for trout and steelhead for most of his life. Grew up around fly, a fly shop and has been guiding for about as long as he could row a boat. He's a host of the popular Wet Fly Swing podcast. Dave Stewart, thanks for stopping by, man. Appreciate your input on this one. Yeah, yeah. Thanks for, thanks for having me. This has been a lot of fun. Yeah, I appreciate all your help getting it together, and it, it's good to, good to talk to you again. Yeah, anytime, sure. anytime. Yeah. Second guest, age of six, he was introduced to fishing in England. He is, uh, he as you could tell, he has a love for stillwater fly fishing and a, a love love for uh, coronamids as well. His book, Fly Patterns for Stillwaters, is a bestseller. He wrote the Orvis Guide to Stillwater Trout Fishing. His entire family still enjoys the outdoors and, and fly fishing in particular. Phil Rowley. Thanks, man. I really appreciate you giving all that information. It's very, very helpful. And, and I think that the audience is going to find this, this to be a valuable episode for us. Thank you, Dave. It was, it was a lot of fun. I, as you can tell, I love talking about it. I do have one question for Dave too here. Uh-huh. If he could row a boat since he was too old to remember, how come I had to row all the time? <laughs> <laughs> That's a good question. That's a good question. <laughs> I got, I think I got yeah. duped. I think yeah. you yeah, pulled think out you that beer and I lost my sense. That's right. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, that's right. <laughs> you just listened to a wisdom from the guides episode with Dave Stewart and Phil Rowley on Southeastern fly. See you next time.
you know, I spend a lot of time, I fish into Wyoming and Montana and Idaho, Washington, Oregon, California. Yeah. And I, I fish exactly the same way. Right. Yeah. So the fish, like I say, they're not swimming around with, you know, little, there's no customs agents down there. Oh, can't bring that into the, this lake. <laughs> right. Right. Exactly. So I think, that, it, so. I think that, uh, especially when we got on that piece, but, you know, bringing them in the flights and the exchange rates and all that stuff, that's important for mm -hmm. somebody that's looking for that little, well, I want to go somewhere, but I don't know yeah. where. Uh, and, and some people just like to go out in a boat and hang out. I love to go out in a boat and hang out. I love it. Yeah. Uh, and that, and a lake is a perfect place to do it. So. gets going quick and it just makes it fun it's not mean or anything everybody's teasing no. each other and and making jokes and we yeah. had a little rock concert going in our cabin late at night that's right classic rock that's right oh that really amazing oh yeah oh there we go <laughs> oh yeah we had so this is good that's what surprised yeah. me about the thing is that phil and i this is the first time we had hung out you know and and greg was the other guy greg keenan and yeah. It was just a good time, man. We had as much time, I had as much fun doing that, just hanging out, you know, listening yeah. to music and stuff as I did on anything, you know. And so that's that's the stuff. It's like all it's always that. It's like fishing, sure, it brings us together, but it's all that other stuff within the trip that just yeah. makes it, you know, over the top. Well, Dave, we get to talk about this industry too, right? It's like yeah, sure. Nuances yeah. and people we bumped into and run across. And, yeah, uh, you know, make yeah, yeah. life interesting. <laughs> Talking about I music, I, one of my one of the best trips that i've been on with and I, we've got a group of guys there's six of us it's loose so there's five or six of us let's put it that way but we went to the white river for three days and i can fish a couple days and then i'm fine you know i, I could hang out by a campfire for a whole day but but on this particular trip the first day we did a 12 mile float it was a grueling march we caught a ton of fish and all, they were all in the places they were supposed to be it was one of those days and then the second day I said, let's just do like a short float, like three or four hours. That's it. And then, so we did that. And then everybody met back at the house and we were right on the, right on the banks of the white. And we got out on the front porch and just, and, and none of us are very good at playing music, but we had guitars and I had a dulcimer and a mandolin. We had a bunch of different things out there and we just picked around a little bit. And then we got into this, this thing of here, what's this song and what year was it? You know, and we had, yeah. we had a ring toss game where, you you know, it's on the rope and you let go and try to hang it on a hook. We drank some beer. I think we ended up eating two day old pizza because we well, did, none of us, none of us uh, wanted to drive. No, no, <laughs> two day old pizza should be sold cold or two days. Yeah. Old. Yes. Oh, yeah. yes. Like, exactly. Like fine wine. It just gets better. <laughs> <laughs>